Good afternoon, everyone. Cold weather has arrived, hasn't it? I'm just going to do something really quick. So I'm going to kick this several times over, most likely. So, um, as uh, certainly most of the ladies know, and I think probably everybody else, uh, the ladies are currently studying Second Timothy. That's that's correct, right? And well, that's one of my favorite books, one of my favorite epistles of Paul. So I can't just let you guys have all the fun. Um, so I, I wanted to to look at a little bit of uh, of Timothy today. Um, as I mentioned, it's one of my favorite uh, letters, and uh, hopefully we'll dig into a few, few of the reasons why. But, you know, in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, I've always had a question. And uh, well, let's see if you would have this same question. If we go in, into chapter 3, it says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such, from such people, turn away. I hope this wasn't Paul pulling his punches. Because this is quite a list, isn't it? This is a very strong message that Paul is, is giving to Timothy and to us. But as you are thinking through that passage, that short portion that I just read there, did you get a question coming in your mind? As you're thinking about all these attributes that Paul is describing people as being, was there a question that comes to your mind? Anybody would like to volunteer what that question might be? Anybody? Brian's muttering something. So that's what Renee said to me earlier. And I was like, well, that's not where my mind goes, so I must be just, I must be a little odd. What other thoughts? What other questions might come to mind? Anybody? Mr. Gregory. Right. And more specifically, are we living in the last day? That's the question that comes to my mind when I'm reading this list, are we living in the last days? Because what Paul describes here is familiar to us, isn't it? We see individuals with these characteristics. And perhaps in some ways, sometimes we fall victim to these characteristics. But I think what Paul is talking about is just a thoroughly wicked that are unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, uh, there are all of these things combined. And yet, a little scary in the mix, is that they have a form of godliness, a form of piety, religion. You know, you think about our history 
our recent history, the 20th century. How many different characters of the, of the 20th century can we, can we list that fall in the category of, of this? Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot. You know, the, the, the list is endless, isn't it? And, well, we hoped that that was resigned to history. But of course, in this century, we have ISIL, or the Islamic State. We have the regime of Assad in Syria. We have continuation of the kinds of characteristics that Paul said we will have in people in the last day. So, surely we're in the last day. Or are we? We certainly see that man love pleasures more than they love God. We certainly see that they're unforgiving and brutal. We see those characteristics. But are we living in the last days? By Paul's description again, it would seem that way. And we would be justified in thinking that we are living in the last days. But haven't there always been men like this? Haven't there always been corrupt individuals like this? Men of this kind on the earth, as we just looked at. But I'm still forced to ask the question, are we living in the last days? If these circumstances that we see that Paul described are around us in this world today, does that mean we're in the last days? Well, so maybe if we, if we dig a little deeper into the Greek, We'll do a little scholarly work. In the Greek, when the Paul, Paul says the last days, he says eskatos hemera, which, when you look at it closely, means the last days. Well, thanks a lot. <laughs> There's no extra secret information in there. There's no special timing in there. And it's a little frustrating because it's a pretty broad term. Well, when did the last days start? When does the last days start? In fact, the Apostle Peter uses this term in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, doesn't he? So if we turn to there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. That exact same phrase that Paul uses in the Greek. In the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants, and on, on my manservants, on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's the end of his quote from Joel. And there is 
or there was an outpouring of God's Spirit at Pentecost. There was this outpouring. And the, the church, we can read the accounts from this day on, they had visions and they had dreams. Paul himself was called through a dream given to Ananias, go to the street named Straight. So the church was experiencing these visions and these dreams, and Paul himself also, and Peter, and others. But that seems to be where it stopped, because there had not seemingly been wonders in heaven that Peter describes that he talks about, or in the signs in the earth beneath. The moon had not really been turned into blood, and certainly the great day of the Lord has not come. And it did not come in their lifetime. So, does this mean that Peter was wrong? Was Peter wrong? Was he wrong to quote Joel? Was, was this not by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So, if Peter wasn't wrong, then maybe our perception of what's going on here, maybe our understanding is wrong. Maybe there's something else going on and that our understanding of the last days and what it really means is a little off. In the prophetic analysis and, and theory, um, there's an idea drawn from 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8. And it, that's the scripture that, that talks about the, a day or a thousand years as a day to God. So there's this prophetic instrument that's used to describe that within a day is a representative of a thousand year period. And so therefore we have a week that is representative of 7,000 years. So we have approximately, according to biblical history, about 6,000 years of experience of man on the earth. So that is the general idea of this prophetic week. And we've probably heard that before. We've maybe studied that a little bit before. And I think that has value. So by this timeline, as it were, or as Renee reminded me what her, um, her dad, my father-in-law, Pat Dennis, once called it, Peter's clock. He described it as Peter's clock. So by this timeline, we might be living in the last days. But how can we be living in the last days and the disciples were living in the last days? Well, the same concept flows through that, well, if I were to say at the end of this next week, I'm going to do something, which day was that? I didn't say which day. It could be Thursday, right? I mean, you kind of consider that's toward the end of next week or Friday, Saturday but the end of next week. So maybe this term of the last days is broader than we think. Maybe there's something else going on in this. And then there's also another point that I would like to pull out, something I noticed this morning. In both Paul's letter to Timothy and Peter's use of Joel in his sermon, Paul refers to an event that took place in the Old Testament in the Old Exodus. 
And Peter quotes a passage from Joel that if we read on from where he quoted, starts to talk about a new exodus. And so there's a link in both of these passages to the concept of the exodus, an old and a new. Let's start looking at this by going back to Joel. Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And he goes all the way through 32. We'll just start in verse 32. And he says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be a deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant of whom the Lord calls. But the prophecy, it doesn't end there. It keeps going into chapter 3. And it says, For behold, in the days... And in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations, and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. It paints a really horrible picture of what, is hap was what has happened to Israel, because we have that historical fact, but what will happen to Israel. That the people of Israel, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, God's people, become so devalued that you can just use a boy as a, as a dollar bill, as a five dollar bill. Just, I'll give you this if you give me that. And what's more, for pleasure, for sinful pleasure, and a little girl, so you can have a glass of devalued, no value at all beyond what I can gain for my own pleasure. What did Paul talk about? Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That's the people that exist during this time that Joel is talking about. People of God devalued, divided. He says in verse 4, Indeed, what have you to do with me? O Tyre and Sidon and all the coast of Philistia, will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me, swiftly and speedily I will return your retaliation upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold, and you have carried it into your temples, my prized possessions. Also, the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders." Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the land of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. And it's interesting, I don't know if you notice here, but the, there's a reflection of what God did in Exodus. The Egyptians treated the children of Israel wickedly, evil, just 
slaves having no value other than what they could make, some bricks. And then when they became too great, what did they do? They just cast them, cast those boys, the firstborn, into the, into the river, killed them. So God performs judgments, doesn't he? He performs judgments on nations. He judged Egypt for what they did to Israel. And so we see this reflected in Joel, that he is going to judge the nations around Israel in the future. He's going to judge them and cause what they did to Israel to come back on them, that they will become slaves. They will be sold into captivity and into slavery to Judea, to Israel. God is not mocked. He will bring his justice to the world when he returns with the kingdom of God. Turning back to Joel chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, Proclaim this amongst the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near and let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And it's the complete reverse of what we often read, isn't it? We want the other way around. We like the other way around. But in this instance, God says, prepare for war. I'm coming. I'm bringing my judgment and justice. Get ready. Get all your weapons together. Don't bother about the implements of farming. <laughs> You're not going to be doing that. Because this is the vengeance that God is going to bring. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations. And gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be weakened. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put, a sickle, uh, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for the wickedness is great. Does that remind you of something? Revelation 19:15. He treads the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Jesus coming to, to crush down and press down that wine press. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. I was talking with Renee in the car earlier and thinking about that passage, that the Lord will be a shelter for his people and a strength for the children of Israel. And I wonder if at any point that went through Jesus' mind when he was looking at Jerusalem, longing that they would have accepted the protection that he always wanted to provide, and wept over them, and knew that in the very end, when he brings the judgment of God on earth, he will be able to protect them. He will be able to shelter them himself. 
Just as in the first exodus, God will bring his judgments on all the nations surrounding his people, and he will protect his people, shelter them from the wrath that he brings. Verse 17, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Mount Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens, no strangers shall ever pass through her again. And it's, a, it's an odd phrase on our ears, no aliens. We've had too much sci-fi. I immediately start thinking of tentacle-laden creatures. But what God is talking about here is, I think, in some ways, what Paul talks about when he's telling, I think, the Galatians, you were once alien to the commonwealth of Israel, right? You were once cut off foreigners. But we know that God is going to bring the Gentiles and Israel together in Christ Jesus so that no aliens will ever pass through that city again. We're looking right here at this passage, the day of the Lord, the end of this last day's period that we may or may not be in. But what does all of this have to do with Timothy, Timothy, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy? Well, if we pick it back up where we left off in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, for, for of this sort, remember, he, he gave us the whole list of, of, of the wicked individuals that are going to be around in, in the last days. Of this sort are those who creep into households and make captive captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And, and if you look, at, look in some other his, his epistles, I, I believe to Titus, you can see that, that there was very real examples of this going on in the church, where wicked individuals were coming through with corrupting ideas and, and destroying the faith of the churches that Paul had worked so hard to build. And so he's talking about something that, that it did happen and, of course, is going to happen. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith that they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Why do you suppose that Paul would bring up a reference to the Exodus right here? This is a reference to the Exodus, what happened just, just prior to the Exodus. Janice and Jamboree's were the, the, the traditional names that were given to the two magicians of Pharaoh's court that stood before Pharaoh and stood before Moses and were against Moses and against God. And they threw their staffs down, and their staffs became the, the, the serpent. And then they also, of course, turned uh, water into blood. They resisted Moses, and they resisted God. And it's interesting that Paul is saying that this same resistance to God 
is going to happen in the last days. That, that there's actually going to be man that would act like these two individuals, resisting the coming creator God that's coming in his judgment and in his power. And we just read in, in Joel that God's saying, arm yourselves, get ready. Almost as though expecting them to do exactly that. Because that's what they were going to do. And I wonder, do they know who they're fighting? Do they know that it's impossible? Pharaoh should have known it was impossible, right? I mean, after the first miracle, do you think he should have known? But of course, as we read, God hardened his heart because it was his purpose to bring about his judgment and his justice for Israel and for Egypt. So, in the last days, there are going to be wicked men that are going to resist God, resist the gospel, resist the teaching of sound doctrine. And they won't be doing it from the outside. Remember, what Paul said is that they, they are going to look like they're godly, having a form of godliness, but denying its real power. And that is the scary part. What we saw on Pentecost with Peter and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is in many ways just a foretaste of things to come. There will, I believe, be another outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In the way that, that the early church saw, and more so. Because that prophecy that Peter quoted is only half fulfilled. It's not done. The rest has still to happen. And so, in all likelihood, what we saw in the early church was a typical fulfillment, a first-time fulfillment of what's going to happen. I believe our young men at some point will begin to prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. There will be wonders and signs. And there will also be men like Janus and Jambres who will resist that work, who will stand against God's people and God right at the cusp of a new exodus. I suspect Paul knew this also. We may not ever really know the exact moment when the last days begin. But in the end, this interesting kind of study and question, and, and, and we could go to so many other depths and levels with it, and let's bring out Isaiah and Jeremiah, and let's get really stuck in. And that, that, would, be, that would be interesting, and I would enjoy that. But that is not the most important question we should ask about this chapter, about 2 Timothy 
chapter 3. The most important question that we should ask about this chapter is this. Steve touched on it earlier. Have we done and are we doing what Paul said Timothy had done? What Paul himself had done? Are we doing those things? The most important question we should answer is are we like Timothy? Are we like him? Do we continue in the way that Paul describes him as, as, as walking? And if not, what do we need to do about it? Picking Paul back up in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love and perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Have we followed Paul in these? Have we studied his doctrine and his teaching? Have we studied how Paul lived? What his purpose was? What his faith was? Have we read the Acts of the Apostles? Have we seen his long-suffering, his love, his persecution? Do we know what happened to him at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? Do we know? In Antioch and Iconium, Paul preached. Well, Paul was Paul. He's preaching wherever he's going. But he preached. He was successful. He planted churches. But what else? He was attacked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was dragged out of the city, and he was left for dead. They thought he was dead. And he recovered, and he went back into the city. And then he went on to a few other places, and then he came back to these very cities, Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. He didn't give up. He persevered. He endured. Do we know these things? Do we know what it took? And it's interesting, Steve talked about this earlier. So, so often, what was Jesus said? A wicked generation looks for a sign, right? We want miracles, we want signs, we want powers, we want the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, and all of these wonderful things. And, and of themselves, they're not bad. But that seemingly is not what enabled Paul to endure. It was the suffering. It was participating in the suffering of Christ Jesus. And for Paul specifically, he, he persecuted the church of God. How much of a motivation was it to him to try in some way undo what he did? He celebrated his persecution. He celebrated his difficulties and his hardships. And none of those hardships deterred him. Like I said, he recovered. He continued on. And he continued on speaking and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is Lord, that Caesar is not. 
and that there's a new world coming and that everything changed because of Christ Jesus. Paul thought it was necessary to remind Timothy of all that he, Timothy, had witnessed and followed after in Paul to encourage him, to help him. And again, it's interesting. He didn't remind him of all the miracles. He reminded him of all the suffering. Why was that? Why did he remind him of all the suffering? In chapter 12, uh, verse 12, he says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and be assured of, knowing that from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Why was Paul bringing all of this up to Timothy? What was the point of this exhortation? Was it possible that Timothy was going to have to endure moments of self-doubt, fear? Was there going to be moments when he was going to question his own faith? And when he was in those moments, what is he recalling? Paul asked him to recall his suffering, his endurance as an example, as an encouragement. Paul, I think, could see that Timothy was going to live in an age of great deception, great persecution. They were persecuted on every side. And if we read our church history, the deception got deeper and deeper and changed the very complexion of the church to something that would have been unrecognizable to Paul. So in many ways, Paul was right of what would happen in the last days. And certainly for Timothy, he experienced the last days. And another thought that crossed my mind was that what would it have been like for Timothy when he heard of Paul's death? Paul is no longer alive. That's that's not compute. This is the man that was beaten and dragged out of cities and didn't die. This was the man that stood before the most powerful in the world and the most lowly and preached the word of God. And at some moment in time, Timothy would hear that Paul was gone. Paul was pouring into him everything he could, arming him, strengthening him, reminding him of his ministry, of the things that he himself had witnessed in Paul's life to try and in maybe some way fill the void that Paul's loss was going to leave. There were, there were going to be times when Timothy needed to just hold on to all of those things. Hold on. Head down. Hold on. Just as it happens to us. We struggle with difficulties and challenges, losses and hardships, and sicknesses. 
and the unfairness of life sometimes. And we question and we say, is this worth it? And then we read the life of Paul, right? We read, we, we read the letter that Paul sent to Timothy and all of the, the acts of the apostles. And we look at those that have gone before us. And Steve quoted again my, one of my other favorite scriptures. That we are encompassed about with this great cloud of witnesses. And we look to those as sources of encouragement that we can endure. Because though the one that was living in them is living in us. Christ in us. And so we experience these difficulties. We struggle with these hardships. And yet, they're really light afflictions, aren't they? <laughs> what we've had, they're light afflictions. We don't yet have the kinds of immediate dangers that Paul and Timothy faced. We don't have the risk of, of being stoned, of being whipped, of being beaten and tossed out of every city. We don't have that yet but we will. That will come again. And that's part of Paul's message. It's part of Paul's message to us. That will come again. So we need to remember our trials and our experiences because not to belittle them, but if we think we've had it tough, we need to get ready because it will get worse. Paul said, evil man will wax worse and worse. And God is going to bring about that judgment, that final judgment that we see. And he's not bringing it about because people have treated one another well. He's bringing his judgment because of their sin. And then also remembering that sometimes... The ones that we are going to be challenged by the most have been supposedly in our own church or in Christianity or in the religious world in which we've, we've moved. Remember, he said, they have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof, embedding themselves in the Christian churches and communities, deceiving men and women, and then also being deceived what Paul warned us against. And we see that today. So many corrupt practices in broader Christianity. And that has led to what? More corrupt practices. With entire church organizations going completely against Scripture on fundamental issues that are not hard to figure out. It's plain right in the Scriptures. The deception is already at work, already around. But there are those that are searching for the truth of God, that are called perhaps to reject the corruption and the deception and follow after Paul and Timothy and Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about those that are not with us that are out there that are needing us to go find them. 
But as we do that, we need something to defend ourselves. We need tools. We need to be equipped, don't we? In verse 16, Paul says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, not just the easy parts, not just the stories we like, but the difficult questions, the difficult scriptures, like a little bit of what we've looked at today. Well, when does the last days? all parts of Scripture. And, of course, for Paul's reference, what was Scripture? It was what we call the Old Testament. But let us not dismiss the new, because that is part of Scripture. All Scripture is profitable for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. But it's not just so that we can hang on. There will be moments when we need to just hold on to those scriptures. Right? There will be those times when we just batten down the hatches and weather the storm. But this is more than that. We are, we are called to use these scriptures to be perfected, to be enabled, to have tools and abilities and skills to do something. Paul says it. For every good work. And it's interesting, that work is not for every good obedient thing that we follow. It's not keeping a law as such. It's not even keeping the Sabbath. It's not even refusing to do something that you shouldn't do. The word he uses is labor. Something you do with your hands something that you get stuck into, that you labor, something that we work at, that we give our service to, to the poor, to the sick, to the downtrodden, to the weak, labors of prayers, to to lift up others, to intercede for others, labors for the ministry and for the spreading of the gospel. In all these things, we are matured, and equipped by the scriptures, the word of God in us and for us. I don't know if you do this, but when I read the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, I read them as though he's writing to me. I put myself in Timothy's place. I'm not saying I'm, I'm a Timothy. But I want Paul to feed me. I want him to mentor me like he did Timothy. And so I look at it that way, that he was encouraging me, that he was guiding me and teaching me, that he was sending these letters to me. And if we do look at Paul's letters to Timothy in this way, I think it becomes more alive, becomes more meaningful, richer, more encouraging. He then says to all of us in 2 Timothy, Chapter 4 and verse 1. 
I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and, and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, to those deceptions that he warned us about. But you, Paul to each one of us, but you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Your ministry. And that's always been powerful to me because Paul didn't say, fulfill my ministry. He called on Timothy to fulfill his own ministry. And that, therefore, we must know the calling of Christ. We must know the ministry that he has called us to do. And do that. Not get distracted by something else, but fulfill your ministry.